0: We're going to be in Joshua six through uh, roughly about eight or so uh, tonight. So you can open your Bibles if you want to. There, we also have the verse verses on the back of the packet um, for you, so you can you can just look at those if you'd rather. Um, I want to just, as a way of review of where we've been. You know, we're in the conquest, which is. Uh, the way of uh, describing Joshua and the children of Israel's invasion into the Promised Land uh, to take possession of it and drive out the people that are there. And there's obviously, this, is, this whole narrative is, uh, I think, fraught with uh, controversy, especially in our world as people, as we see uh, things happening in the name of, uh, so-called name of God around the world that it causes people to ask questions about, well, what about the conquest of the land of Canaan? So as, a, as the 9-11 towers come down or as, the, as bombings happen here and there, it, it does raise a little bit of scrutiny back on the Old Testament. So we started with trying to understand the conquest in general and what, what's happening there. And I want to be clear as we, as we say that, and this sometimes sounds a little bit insensitive, and I don't mean it that way, but... Um, when it comes to things that happen in the name of god the problem isn't that god would judge people he's creator and he has the right to do that the question that always needs to be asked is is this of god or is this of satan that's the question that's the pivotal pivotal question and and people mostly around the world are not asking that question they're mostly asking well how can he be just and loving but we also believe, or how can he be loving and gracious and also do this, but we also believe he is just and he reserves the right to judge anyone that he wants to. So I don't fear that, I don't back down from that. The question is really, uh, is this of God or is this of man? And the real, question, the real reason that that's important is because it forces us then to go to the cross and say, is Jesus true? If Jesus is true, then what, let's say, uh, the Muslims would do, Around the world, in or I say radical Islam would do around the world is not of God if Jesus is true. So the burden for us is not really defending God's position on the land of Canaan in the book of Joshua. Our problem is really defending the cross of Christ and his resurrection. Because if that's true, then there's no problem with what Joshua is doing in the land of Canaan. Um so he is so long as they obey what God is asking them to do. so um, last week, what we talked about was the structure of the Book of Joshua, and trying to wrap our minds around how Joshua is broken down and we're going to dive a little bit more into it tonight, but the Book of Joshua is essentially divided into three parts, where you have the the conquest of the land, the division of the land amongst the twelve tribes, uh, and their their clans, which we'll get to probably uh, either next week or the week after, and then uh, how Israel is supposed to retain the land, which we would get to just after the division of the land. I think the division of the land will go a little bit faster, and then we'll we'll look uh, at how Israel is to retain the land before we get into the book of Judges, where we see they didn't even do that. <laughs> so they didn't make it very far. Um, and then we'll go after Judges. My plan is to go into First and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and then look at some more. Because the political turmoil around the land of Israel starts to heat up really fast once they get settled and once they start to establish a monarchy. So, um, the book of, But the book of Joshua is divided in those three, three ways. The Lord gives uh, the land to Israel, and there are some conditions to him giving them the land. And I bring this up as a way of review, but also because it's going to be really pretty important tonight. Um, the Lord's going to give Israel the land on the condition that um, their faith be expressed by Joshua in a handful of ways. Uh, First is that they have to cross the Jordan and set foot on the land. They have to be courageous uh, to fulfill fulfill the task that that God has put out for them. And they have to meditate on the law. They need to obey what God is asking them to do. And um, so they, they have to be faithful in all that they do. Really, the Lord sets out the law for them. And as they go in, they have to be very careful to obey it. And if they're not if they're not careful to obey it, they won't get the land. They'll lose in the battles, and they'll be removed from the land. And um, and so, um, so that's kind of the the setup. We got um, the reader as we're looking at Joshua and what's happened to Joshua. We okay? Everything okay? We're good. Okay. All right. Um, so the the reader is. Seeing Joshua, and what the writer, it appears, is doing is establishing Joshua and showing us that Joshua is the new Moses. He's taking over for Moses. And the reason we know that is because you see all of the things that Joshua is doing after Moses dies. Joshua is doing a lot of the same things. God is setting up Joshua in the eyes of the people to be essentially the new Moses. Both of them send out spies into the land, as you would be want to do if you're going to conquer the land. Both of them struck fear into the hearts of the enemies. Both of them initiate circumcision, uh, Joshua on the hill of Gilgal, uh, just before they go into battle. Both of them celebrate the Passover, and uh, both of them take off their sandals before the Lord, because the ground they are standing on is holy. And so we see Moses and Joshua going through the same thing. So it's clear uh, the Lord is putting Joshua up there on a, on a pedestal and showing us that they're one and the same. Uh, have there been any questions since we've been going into the, the conquest? Before we get started tonight, I just want to be sure we tackle any of that. Preliminary stuff. If not good deal. Okay. Um, so Israel's getting ready for their first battle. They're charging up the night before. And they're, they've gone through the circumcision. They've gone through the Passover. And um, the Lord comes to, to Joshua there on the hill of Gilgal. They're standing on the hill of Gilgal, which is situated um, actually quite nicely right there at the entrance of the land, uh, just on the other side of the Jordan River. And they're getting ready. They're about two miles away from Jericho, and they're just, they're just looking at it. It's right there in front of them, and they're getting really excited, and on the night before the battle, the Lord appears to Joshua, and he's standing there, and it, he's the commander of the army of the Lord, and you can see this in Joshua five thirteen. He says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua went up to him and said, are you for us or against us? Um, this serves to prove just like it did as the Lord guided the children of Israel through the wilderness that he has not left them alone. And this is a pivotal, I can't, I, you can't underscore how important this scene is in all of the book of Joshua. Because he tells him at the very beginning of the book, fear not, For I am with you. Now, Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness had the advantage of seeing a pillar of fire and a cloud, knowing that the presence of the Lord was there. They had the tabernacle set up in their midst, and so they knew that the Lord was there. How does Joshua know that the Lord is going with him? Well, he appears on the hill the night before battle with a sword in his hand unsheathed. But this becomes a kind of a pivotal moment as well because for Joshua, he wants to know the big question. I don't know who you are, but are you for me or are you against me? Is that sword for me or is that sword going to be used with me in the battle that we're about to go into? And of course, the Lord says, neither. Because Joshua has asked the wrong question. Um, look at the passage in 5:14 the next verse he says and he said no but I am the commander of the army of the Lord now I have come and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him and said what does my Lord say to his servant and you know that we read it last week but the but the commander of the army of the Lord we said was Christ pre-incarnate uh, standing before him. He does not deny him worship. And he tells him, take off your shoes for the, feet you're, for the ground you're standing on is holy ground. And so Joshua is commanded to do it. But the Lord, it's curious that the Lord answers him neither because Joshua has actually asked the wrong question. The question is not, am I with you? I've already told you that. I am with you. The question is, are you with me? Because I'm the one leading you into battle. You're not the one leading you into battle. I am the one leading you into battle. And for Israel's entire existence, they get this backwards. They have the roles completely reversed. And even Joshua gets this confused. Tonight we're going to see gets this confused. Because you know what happens when you start to win? This happens all the time with the Cowboys. I'm a Cowboys fan and they never win, uh, which is why I'm glad to be in Alabama, and I'm glad to root for the Crimson Tide because they always win, well, minus the national championship. We won't talk about that. Um, Steven Wyman's not here tonight, so he, he can't razz me uh, as a Clemson fan, but um, the Cowboys never But you know what happens, though? In the middle of the season, they get on like a four-game winning streak. Um, they start defeating opponents, and they're easy opponents. But they win like four in a row, and they start to get really cocky. And what you hear is everybody saying, oh, this might be the year we go to the Super Bowl. This might end the 22-year drought. This might be it, right? Um, well, the children of Israel, actually, it only takes one battle for them to get that way. Um, so they start, they start preparing for battle. And what goes before them? Do you remember? They're told, as they go into Jericho, everybody knows the story of Jericho, right? I mean, we we, we know that we've heard this growing up. Josh fought the battle of Jericho. Uh, Jericho, uh, right? Uh, And the walls came tumbling down. We all know the story. What goes before them in battle? The Ark of the Covenant. Now, so essentially what we have is the divine... Oh, let let me back up. Let me pause on that thought real quick because we actually have a map. Just to get your bearings here, the titles are small. I can't do anything about that. It just generates automatically. So uh, remember the Jordan River. It's the pathway they took from east of the Jordan into the land. Okay. They camp out at Gilgal, which is right here, two miles from Jericho. All right. They've already sent spies into the land. They already know that it's weak. They know Rahab's there. She's hidden the spies. Rahab has told them, everybody's afraid of you. Uh, this is going to be a pretty easy battle for you. Don't really worry about it. And they're, they're getting ready to go in. And the ark is going before them. But you understand that the ark being before them is representative of the divine king going in before them. And, um, and he's represented by the ark. What's on top of the ark? Mercy seat. What's the mercy seat? We talked about it a couple weeks ago. What's the, what's the mercy seat? Yeah, where God is, God's ottoman. It's where he puts it. He rests his feet. All right. That's the that's the idea. Okay. So essentially, we've got the the priests that are carrying the ark. They are uh, often referred to as kind of, if you can think of the metaphor, the, the sort of sacred warriors that are in charge with carrying the king into battle. All right. The king is going into battle uh, with them. The they are told that they need to go in a royal march. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sure. Whether Israel fights by faith for God. Can you describe what that means? Yes, whether Israel fights by faith and for God. Okay. So on behalf of God in honorarium or whatever. Is that what you That said? is correct. Yes. Um, it, uh, uh, the way we would Yeah, the way it would be described now is like holy war? Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's what they're engaging in. All right. Is is essentially a holy war. And um, has a super bad connotation today. Yeah, yeah, it's an inflammatory phrase today. But, um, I mean, there's not really another way to describe it. A holy war would technically be a war on behalf of God. And, and the reason that um, that's why I led with, with talking about Islam and the issue there is that when we talk about a holy war with them, the real question is, is God actually doing this? Um, and I think if we settle on Christ died on the cross and he resurrected the God that he's projecting and telling us about there is not that. Because if Christ actually died for our sins, then judgment for anyone that's not in Christ is to come, right? So it's not, there's not the holy war, so to speak, that God is engaging in until Revelation, the events of Revelation. Um, so, uh, they're, if, like you said, they're fighting by faith for God, but what they're charged with doing is walking around the city of Jericho one time each day for six days, and then on the seventh day walking seven times around the city. Now, the the reason why that's important and the reason why they're charged with doing that as they carry the king into battle, what they're doing is tracing the boundaries of the city of Jericho. And essentially, they're claiming it every time they walk around it. They're claiming it for the king that they're carrying. This is his territory now. That's essentially what that that image is. But then on the seventh day, they're supposed to walk around it seven times. And the image of seven has always been presented throughout the Bible. And it is in uh, several books of the New Testament as well. The image of divine perfection so they're supposed to not only walk around the boundaries of the city in sort of a royal march, marking the territory that the king is about to take control of, but then on the seventh day, they're to walk around it showing that he has uh, control, complete control over this battle and that the, the um, people inside the walls are powerless, if you will, to resist it. And so it's declaring this event that's about to take place Sacred and set apart for the Lord. By the way, what are the children of Israel going to do once they get into the land of Jericho or in the city of Jericho? Burn it all down. Burn it all down. Why? That's part of it. Yes, to, to cleanse the land of the people. Yes. God said so. God said so? That's another part of it. All right. Good answer. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, I guess, the, the impetus behind, behind why they're burning it, period. Yeah. Yes, some of the burnt offerings were burned in totality. So what this is, what the city of Jericho and the people are, is a burnt offering. So the, I know that sounds gross. I'm not trying to make it any more grotesque than it already is, but it's a burnt offering. All of it, 100% of it, is dedicated to the Lord. Now, I want you to th- just take a moment, just pause for a second. Um... God told Abraham, "You're going to come back. Your children are going to come back into this land, and they're going to judge the Amorites. But they're going to wait. We're going to wait for 400 years because the sin of the Amorites is not full yet." The idea, the concept of being dedicated to the Lord, or them burning everybody to the ground to give over to the Lord, is essentially not only is it an offering to the Lord and it's saying it's it's all yours, which is what we would do with. I don't know, our finances or what they would do in the Old Testament with their wheat or their corn or whatever. Um, they're, they're giving the first city they conquer to the Lord completely. Uh, the other part of it is saying the only way that, this, that all the mess that's here can be properly adjudicated is just to give it to you. You're going to have to sort all of it out. And he's going to deal with it. So that's, that's also the image there is saying give it, just give it over to me. They do this in I, but it's a little bit different when they get to I, which we'll see in just a little bit. But, um, but it's, this, it's this ceremony, if you will, for seven straight days as they walk around this city. And, uh, and then what do they do at the end of the walking, at the end of the seventh day? What do they do? They have a pepper alley. Yeah. They, they blow on ram's horns, which is, which is a signal of the presence of the king. I want you to look at some of these passages here. 2 Samuel Starting with 2 Samuel on the back here. Uh, So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Um, Look at uh, 1 Chronicles 15, 8. So all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting, the sound of the horn, trumpets, in symbols and made loud music on harps and lyres, Zechariah nine fourteen. Then the Lord will appear over them, and His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. We um we also know in Revelation there's a whole series of judgments that are called trumpet judgments, right? You're all announcing the same kind of thing this is a uh an an, an inauguration an event of the lord that announcing that the king has arrived officially so as the children of Israel bring the ark into their presence, they play loud music and shout uh with a with a or play with a horn and I know the lights drive me crazy right now um but uh sound the horn and and um and it's to announce the, the, that the king has arrived. So what they're doing at Jericho is essentially the same thing. Claiming the territory for the king. Claiming that it's a divine offering. Walking around it seven times. Sounding the trumpet. Announcing to the city of Jericho, the Lord is here. Announcing to themselves that the Lord is here. They engage in shouting, obviously, because they're very excited that this is happening. That the, um, and that what's basically about to start is essentially a holy war. Um, this city being claimed for the Lord. Now, it's not entirely clear why Jericho in particular is singled out by Yahweh as a specific object of his judgment that is to be devoted to Yahweh or what we said last week was put under the ban. Remember the word, uh, the Hebrew word, harim is that idea of total destruction. Total dedication, it's off limits. You can't touch it. You cannot have anything in here because it is completely dedicated to the Lord. That's the concept of the word harim. And so they're supposed to do this. I'm reiterating this over and over because something's gonna happen and it's not good. All right, we all, I think we all know what's coming. Um, so after the battle, we see, uh, but, but back on that, that previous point, we're not necessarily told exactly why Jericho is, In particular, what we are told and what we do have at least some um, indication is that that act of burning and uh, of harim dedicating everything to the Lord seems to be restricted to the Canaanites. And it, it, it seems like its purpose is to make sure that the spiritual contagion of the Canaanites doesn't get into the Israelite camp. God is very particular in Deuteronomy. Over and over and over again, he reiterates, you must purge the evil person from among you. If there's someone that gives evidence to the fact that they are not part of the community, truly, you must stone them and put them to death. Seems pretty harsh, we would say, but God is saying, sin is very serious. You are my kingdom. Think about that for just a second. It's the kingdom of God that he is establishing on earth. And he's communicating to the people of the world, I am establishing my kingdom, and I'm doing it through Israel. And so as you go into the land, you must purge the evil person from among you because there is no evil in my kingdom. So this is what you must do. You must follow it to the letter of the law. So as they go in enacting God's rules... When it comes to the Canaanites to get rid of the spiritual contagion and also judge the people that are there, they have to completely dedicate them to God. Go ahead. This was 40 years in the making. Surely folks in Jericho kind of knew that they were the crosshairs. Why didn't they just leave? Did some of them leave? I know we don't know. Well, um, you know, it's... It, well, I think we could probably ask the same question about people in coastal cities when they know a hurricane's coming. Why don't you just leave? What do they say? Ah, it's, being, it's overblown. Ah, it'll die off. But even Rahab tells the spies this as they come in. We know that you crossed the Red Sea, and everybody was pretty scared about that. But it wasn't until you got to Sihon and Og, and you defeated them out there, that we, our hearts melted. So that by the time they get to uh, Jericho, they've boarded up the city, right? They didn't leave. You have to understand, too, Jericho is the first city. uh, Well, I'm going to back up. I'm not going to make that claim. They're one of the first cities we know of that was fortified, that had a wall around it. And the wall was massive. Uh, for that day, I mean, 15 feet probably, which is like, whoa, you know, <laughs> you, no bulldozers and no no cranes. I mean, that's 15 feet's not bad. You got one guy on top of another, I guess. I don't know what they're doing, but uh, <laughs> hold the stone, stay still. Um, but, but so it's, it's pretty big, it's massive. We, there's a tower that we've found that's, I think, 8,000 BC that was in the city of Jericho. I mean, if you can think, I mean, that's, that's a long, long time ago. Um, so their, their city is fortified. It seemed like they were pretty confident that if we just board the place up and don't let anybody in or out, they'll never be able to destroy this town. I mean, we're not, we're not in the age of trebuchets yet, you know, where you're launching rocks and things like that. This is guys with what swords coming up against our fortified walls. What are you really going to do? So long as we board the place up, you're not getting in. I think that's the thought anyway. Um, and probably as they're walking around the city, they're thinking maybe, ah, oh, they're just looking for a way in, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and they're not, they're not finding it, so what's going to happen? But then obviously what does happen is they, they shout, the walls come tumbling down. There's some debate right now that, I, that well, I say right now it's been around for about 100 years, a little less than 100 years. Um, our, an archaeologist went in, was pretty famous for going into the city of Jericho, And digging through the ruins and dating the uh, the one particular layer to about 1400 BC where it seems that whatever was there in terms of the fortification fell outward instead of inward. Which if it fell inward that would be evidence of a battering ram of some kind and if it fell outward that's evidence of something else. And so... Um, then there were some, uh, another archaeologist that went in and disputed that claim. So it's kind of up in the air. We don't really know uh, much about the, the archaeological evidence there. But needless to say, they claim the, the city for Jericho and they destroy it completely. Or so they think. Now they've gotten cocky. Now they're a little bit ahead of themselves. Look at that. We just shouted. We did what the Lord said. We shouted. And the walls came tumbling down. And we killed everybody, and we dedicated it all to the Lord. So let's move on to the next city, the city of I, not AI. The city of I, all right. Uh, the city of I. It's uh, the name of this, of the city of I literally means the heap or the ruin. The reason why that's important is because Joshua eight twenty eight. If you look there, about three fourths. Uh, of the way down the page there. It says, so Joshua burned I and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. Ah, I see what you did there. Um, so the Bible gets kind of punny with some of the names. And so uh, it's a he- it, the name literally means the heap or the ruin. Um, this second scene is depicted in two different ways. There's two significant events that happen because they're essentially going to go to I... Uh, two times. They go the first time and it turns out to be a debacle. And then they go the second time and they actually get victory. But it's interesting to look at why it all happened the way it did. Now we know about Achan, I'm pretty sure. Um, What they're going to find out is that uh, Achan, um, did y'all get that by the way on the previous one, debacle and victory? Okay. Um. So first, Achan, he proves he's disloyal to the Lord and to Israel, and what happens? As a result, they face defeat. Um, in fact, many men actually lose their lives because of Achan's sin. God it's interesting that God actually holds the whole nation of Israel to account for one man's sin, a sin that they didn't even know about. Joshua obviously doesn't know about. Because as soon as they lose, Joshua tears his clothes and weeps and goes, why have you left us? And the Lord's like, stand up. (laughs) Achan sinned. (laughs) <laughs> Stone him and we'll be good. <laughs> it's like, okay, well. Um, but, so Achan sins, proves his disloyalty to the Lord, to, to all the nation of Israel, and, um, and it affects the entire nation. Look at Joshua 6, 18. It says, But you keep for yourselves, uh, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, Listen to this, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make uh, make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and be trouble upon it. So if any of you takes anything, the whole nation is going to have to suffer for it. We might think, that's not fair. Why would God do that? Were you in the garden? I wasn't. We're held accountable for Adam's sin. Were we at the cross? I wasn't. I get the benefit of one man's righteousness. God has, throughout history, done this. The community as a whole must be pure. It's not good enough that you, as an individual, are. The community as a whole must strive for righteousness, or it's not my people. You understand? So Achan sins, um, but behind this story and the other scriptures is that concept of national solidarity. Um, It's that notion that an individual's acts affects the whole group. So in Achan's sin, what happens is that, uh, oh, sorry, Achan, I put up the first part, but I didn't put the second part. Uh, in Achan's sin, Israel herself becomes a devoted thing. You understand that? Here's all the things that are in I. All of them belong to the Lord. When you take one, you make yourself one of the devoted things. You make yourself one of the things that has to be destroyed. Because that belongs to me. So now, you are mine too. You're, you're associating yourself with that thing. So that's what Achan has essentially done. Um, So Israel uh, rectifies the sin, obviously, in the camp before going to Ai the second time. You see that in Joshua 7, 25. Um, Look at what they do. I think it's on the back. He says, and Joshua said, why did you bring this trouble upon us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with his whole family with fire and stoned them with stones. His family is complicit in that uh, lie, basically. And so Israel rectifies the sin. Now, we know that as one of the, the, pro- the main problem with them going into I. but it seems that there are also some other problems involved, not necessarily uh, explicitly called out in the text, but obviously that Joshua made some really terrible decisions. Um, first, or I should say the second thing that he did was he failed to seek divine approval, which clearly violates the, the, the rules of a holy war. Look at Numbers uh, 27, 21. Uh, it says, And he shall stand... This is the, the kind of the rules of engagement, so it is. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim, which we think might be like dice or something like that. It's some sort of stone that they had that they determined the will of the Lord with. The Urim and Thummim, the judgment by the Urim before the Lord. At His word they shall go out, and at His word they shall come in. Both He and all the people of Israel with Him, the whole congregation. So they're supposed to seek divine approval before they ever even go into war. Which Joshua doesn't actually do. What does he do instead? Well, the uh, his general tells him, or his his friend tells him, you know, why don't we just the city of Ai is pretty weak. There's like 15 guys there. I mean, come on, this is ridiculous. Why don't we just send just a few guys up there to be easy? We don't have to send the whole camp of fighting men. Joshua says, yeah, okay, we'll all just sit back. We'll send in the, just, a, just a few of us, 3,000 or so. That should be enough. They send in 3,000 and they get their tail whooped. And so it, uh, being co- he's confused, and, but, but it's obvious that he didn't actually follow the law that set out for him. But if you notice in Joshua 8, 1 to 2, the second war, it says, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people and his city. And now that's after they stone Achan, God grants to Joshua the approval, go and take over the city. All right. Um, but he also gives them the plunders this time. Yes, which we're going to get to in just a second. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, where am I? Uh, okay. Thir- the third thing: uh, the spies actually violate the holy war standard by counting on Israel's thousands, not on the Lord. Um, so you see, in um, in seven three to four. It says, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, uh, and do not have all the people go up, but let two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Don't make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. So it, it seems like, you remember the, the, uh, in, in the Psalms, you trust in the horses and chariots, but we trust in the Lord. They started to trust in the horses and chariots. It seems very apparent that they're just going to send send people up to the the city and and attack. Um, but you notice the second time in Joshua eight three. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose. This is the second battle to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose. 30,000 men of valor and he sent them out by might. So Joshua is now actually starting to consider this a little bit different and uh, not trusting in his own wisdom and his own ability to fight, but actually preparing for the battle. Um, fourth, the fourth thing that seems pretty uh, apparent in the, in the thing here is that um, what seems to be a military blunder by Joshua, where he just attempts to walk up to a walled city with 3,000 men, just thinking, well, I mean, the walls of Jericho fell, and they're way bigger than the city of Ai, and the men of Jericho are a lot more fierce and more in number than the city of Ai, so if God gave us the walls of Jericho and the city of Jericho, then what is this? This little pitiful city, so we just walk up to the front gate, and no. But there's something deeper, I think, going on here, and and you know because you notice that um, what happened afterwards uh, when they when they start to when they gather for the second attack? Joshua takes a little bit more tactical approach. We've already read three and four, but if you look at uh, twelve through seventeen, um, which is the bigger passage on the back, look at what Joshua does the second time. God's already giving him approval. Why doesn't he just do it like he did at Jericho? He says he took about 5,000 men and he set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces. The main encampment was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. Now pause right there. We just read that he took 30,000 men and he put them on the back side of the city. He took 5,000 men and he put them on the front side of the city okay, then he's somewhere else with another group of men, okay? So it says, uh, Joshua spent the night in the valley, probably with some men with him, I'm assuming. 14, and as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. See, they know that Israel has tried to conquer us once before, and they sent just a few piddling little men so Joshua takes, it seems like, those same piddling few little men and puts them in the valley with him so that they think he, that's all the men he's got. He stations them in the valley. And so the king looks out there over the wall because they know that the Israelites are still out there. They look out there over the wall and they go, well, he's out there again. Why don't we just go run him off and just scare him off this time? We beat him once. All right. So he says, but he did not know that there was an ambush against the city behi- uh, against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua. uh, uh, And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. So all the fighting men have gone. They've left the city and they've left women and children back in the city. And all the the plunder, as it were, I'm assuming the city gates are open because they're chasing all the men they think Joshua has. And now they've got 30,000 men behind the city and 5,000 men in front of the city that are going to go, once the men leave, they're going to go into the city and take it and burn it to the ground. (laughs) So not a man was left in the city of Ai or or Bethel uh, who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Foolishness. Um, All right. So this is a map of what the battle, what took place in the battle. I'm going to have to point out the cities here, but essentially, this group of people right here is the thirty thousand men that are behind the city. Here's I, okay? So they're behind the city, waiting in ambush. There's another group of five thousand men sitting over here on the, I guess you would say, the north and west side of the city. So southwest side of the city, northwest side of the city. Um, This is where, loosely, where Joshua's encampment is. And then Joshua and his men go uh, down into the valley. And the people come chasing them out of the valley and start to fight them here on the hillside. When they get there, Joshua extends his javelin out, letting these people in ambush know where he is. He gets up on top of the ridge, holds out his, his javelin. These men get up. Once all the men have left the city, they go into the city and burn it to the ground. Now the people that have chased out Joshua and his men realize that their whole city is burning to the ground as they turn around watching the plumes of smoke go up to the sky, realize they've been duped, have nowhere to turn, and then once the men get out of the city from burning it, they join Joshua in the valley and the men the men of the city of Ai are surrounded on all sides and they kill them. Now, it's pretty shrewd battle strategy, right? Pretty ingenious technique. Question is, I think why does Joshua go through all this trouble? when um, the city of Jericho, he walked around it seven times. Why does he do this kind of strategy? Um, it seems as though uh, Israel's spiritual failures from Achan taking the stuff at eye, God holding them to account for their sin, explains Joshua's foolishness. Joshua, I think, normally follows the Lord. We see this pattern throughout the book of Joshua. Joshua wants to follow the will of the Lord. But one thing that seems to come up is that Joshua, the first time they go to Ai, makes some terrible decisions. Some decisions you don't normally see him making. Why is that? I think possibly, just like we see a number of times in scripture where the spirit leaves Saul and he goes crazy, I think there's probably a little bit of foolishness that God is giving to Joshua at that moment so that they fall into ruin, so that they, be, they are defeated. So that Joshua then comes to the realization of what has caused their loss and rectifies the situation. At the same time, it teaches the leader, sin is not tolerated in the people of God. It can't be tolerated in the people of God. And you, Joshua, as the leader, know better than that. And you should know better. So he teaches him a lesson and essentially allows him to make some really foolish decisions the first time they go into the battle of Ai. The second time, he's not going to make the, those same choices. Once the Lord tells him that, that the, the city is in his hands and he gets permission, he employs a great battle strategy to actually end up defeating the city of Ai, maybe even more than was needed. Um, so while upholding uh, the devotion ban in the city of Jericho, Israel, by the Lord's command, gets to keep the plunder of the city of Ai, though the people are destroyed. Why? When you obey the Lord, good things happen. Well, okay, that may be, that's a solution I've heard before, is when you obey the Lord, good things happen. They obeyed the Lord at Jericho and he made them offer everything. Why and I it was the word of the Lord that commanded. That Jericho, was the first. Jericho was the first fruits of their offering. So all of the plunder, all of the gold, all of the silver. Now we know Achan took some stuff, but it was supposed to be all burned to the ground, because all of it was the first fruits to the Lord. After that, there's some things that they get to keep. The people are purged because, again, sin cannot be tolerated in the community of the Lord, but the plunder, they get to keep. It's be- the first fruits, you know, of uh, when, when they were sacrificing uh, animals. Yeah. The first, the, the, the best Yeah. Went to the Lord. Yeah. And so Jericho is the first fruits of the land. This is also why um, the, the, when God claims something as his own, the punishment is usually, if you don't obey it, the punishment is usually the firstborn, your firstborn, uh, that it's a serious punishment. Because essentially what God is saying is that's mine. If you choose not to give it to me, then I'm going to take, take your first fruit. That's my first fruit. So it's essentially the, the children of it. Now, does God need the money? No, once it's burned, it goes up in smoke. He's not, it's not going into his coffers, okay? He's, he's not richer now having the city of Jericho. It's all his anyway. But what he's saying is it's not yours. You're not allowed to keep it. After that, though, after they've given the first fruits, they're allowed by the permission of the Lord to actually keep some things. But I think there's several things that, this, that these battles draw out and should teach us because the same is true of the church. Um, Paul brings this back in 1 Corinthians 5. You have the, the man who has his, his father's wife, his stepmom, we guess, um, and has a relationship with it. And the, the people in the city of Corinth are promoting it and they're saying that we're good with this. We're such an open and tolerant community. And Paul says when, when you, the next time you assemble, you better kick that person out of your church. He says, you must purge the evil person from among you. See, it, d- it doesn't seem that anybody in the New Testament community saw this as really different. The difference was you don't stone them. That's not, That'll be taken up in judgment in the last day. What you do is you purge them from the church community. You don't extend to them the forg- you don't tell them in any way that they've been forgiven by the Lord as being part of the covenant community of the church. You make it very clear that sin is not tolerated in- within the people of God. So when you observe it, you remove it. And I should say probably unrepentant sin. Right? That was the problem. We all are going to sin. It's unrepentant. So it should teach us a a huge lesson about just who we are as a covenant and what we're called to be as a covenant body of Christ. But it should also tell us what are the things that we depend on. If the Lord tells you, fear not for I am with you, at what point do you begin to trust the things that you have and rely on them instead of on the Lord? Who, by the way, has told us in Matthew eight or 28 18, go therefore into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Think about that for a second. Think about the promise that Christ is giving to the apostles, to us. There, as he departs, as he leaves. All authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The the war that we're engaging in now, if I can use the term holy war, that we're engaging in now, is a holy war of evangelism and disciple making. But we get nervous because the world around us is getting sort of strange. It's getting really weird and there's a lot of vocabulary we're not aware of we don't know about we're not thinking about and we've never thought about you can change genders we, we did nobody's ever said that before how do we deal with that a lot of people are rioting and picketing and there's all kinds of people are burning places to the ground it's getting crazy We can do one of two things. We can sit back and we can watch it and we can worry. And that's a lot of times what we choose to do is sit back and we worry about those things taking place. Or we sit back and we complain about it, which is another form of worry. We complain about it. We say, you see what they're doing? This is just crazy. I've had it with this place. This is just awful. Or we can give people the gospel. We can... March into battle and watch the gates of hell fall before us. It's amazing how many of the metaphors in the Battle of Jericho come back in the New Testament. The gates of hell will not prevail against the gospel. You're engaging in a holy war. So instead of complaining, share the gospel. It's the hearts of the people that have to change. It's not conformity. And I think what we, what we lost a long time ago was we thought that if somebody just behaved, that was beneficial. Somebody just would just act right, that was good. They still died and went to hell. But as long as they just didn't disrupt my worldview, right? As long as they acted right. As long as they didn't go switching genders along the way. As long as they... they, they, they Woman married a man, a man married a woman. As long as that happened, that was fine. They still didn't have the gospel. It just didn't bother us. Their hearts were still just as wicked. But when we sit back and we don't do anything, we don't share the gospel with them, we don't actually engage with people that are lost, what do we expect's going to happen? It's going to get really crazy. We still have the same mission we did 100 years ago. We still will have it in, this, in the next 100 years as long as the Lord tarries. Questions, comments? Go ahead, Brian. This one right here? Right, yeah. Yeah, um, so, oh, when they're going into Jericho? Right. You pictured them going from back here in? Is that what you're talking about? I was picturing them coming across the river in the other direction. Oh, coming across this way. Like, like because you got to go west right there. Right, they're going this way. Okay. So they're stationed out here, okay. out uh, east of the Jordan. Okay. And then uh, they're camped out there, and then they send spies into the land. The spies go in here to Jericho. They hide in the hills. They come back. They tell him, we can do it. They go back, cross the Jordan, camp out at Gilgal, then they come into Jericho and defeat okay. the place. i have to look at my maps. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Mediterranean Sea is all the way over here, if that helps. America is probably like right there, somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that's about right. Yeah, probably I would say somewhere between fifty and 30, fifteen and thirty, yeah, something like that. Yeah, um, I can visualize it. It's weird, but um, yeah, something like that. Other questions? Yeah. 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 I get caught in prayer asking God sometimes are you with me? And he's like no, are you with me? <laughs> that's that's the orientation. You got to get it right. Christ's death on the cross tells us he's with us question is whether we're with him other comments thoughts questions all right let's pray heavenly father we just we just pray for our own hearts both as a church community as individuals that um, that we would have hearts that are set on being with you in what you're doing All of the people in this city you brought here, every single one of them. The 40,000 college students that are coming in to the university over the next few weeks, all of the homes that have people in them, some with kids, some older, some younger, all of them you have brought here and put in the places that you've put them in for a reason. I pray for our own hearts as we contemplate what that reason might be. That we would join you in what you're doing. That we would get on board. That we would go into the spiritual battle trusting that you're with us because you've told us you would be because you've shown us in Christ because you've given us the hope of the resurrection. So we have nothing to fear. Lord, we confess that we are often terrified to open our mouths with the words of the gospel for fear that people might think we're stupid, might call us, maybe call us names, might ridicule us, might ignore us, might not be friends with us. But I pray we would give all of that to you, since it's all yours anyway. Forgive us where we fear. In Jesus' name, amen.